Well, before we dive in, let's pray. Father, uh, we ask you to be our teacher, as always. Uh, we have been singing um, that we want to be more aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we would ask that right now you take the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts in ways that uh, change us. Uh, you are the one God who can do this. Um, not the most clever words in the world can change a human heart, but you can take truth from your word and, and you can change us. Please do that as we reflect together, think together, and uh, listen to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna share a story with you that I heard another pastor, a guy named Craig Rochelle, uh, tell a version of this story once. And, and um, so I wanna share a version of it with you. Uh, and here's the story. Not long ago, there was a tech startup company that cared for their employees at just an unprecedented level, right? I mean, went overboard in terms of things that they would do for their employees. They offered on-site meals, on-site massage, uh, on-site childcare, senior care, I could work there, uh, pet care, auto maintenance, flex time, three-year maternity and paternity leave with pay, woo-hoo, uh, free snacks, free therapy, free plastic surgery, uh, a company issued car, computer, uh, condo. Uh, they were the best of the best of the best. And they were called appgoofacebazon.com. Well, okay, I thought it was funny. But anyway, uh, they quickly became number one on the Forbes best places to work list. In fact, People were quitting Forbes just to go work at AppGooFaceBazon. So it came as a shock when the CFO, the chief financial officer, got caught stealing from the company. Uh, the company had a, a culture that revered integrity, and, uh, and this guy was a highly compensated executive in that company. But the money that he had embezzled and lost was ginormous. And when this was discovered, as you can well imagine, it just blew up in social media. The whole world knew just about instantly what had happened. And so the old man, this is the chief executive officer, the founder, the owner, the oldest person in the company who is 26, called <laughs> this man into his office to meet with him. And you can guess what that was going to be about. The senior leadership team was there. Everybody knew what was coming, right? Ruin, disgrace, firing, probably prosecution. But when this guy walks into the old man's office, he figures, what have I got to lose? And he does the oddest thing. He falls down on his knees and he begs for mercy. He says, you know, think of my wife, think of my kids, give me time, I'll pay it back. That was a stupid thing for him to say. I'll pay it back, I'll, I'll give you what I owe you. And the other members of the senior leadership team, that executive team, they were amused by this, but also kind of disgusted, really. For one thing, the debt that he owed could not be repaid, not in his lifetime. It just couldn't. It was too great. And for another thing, it was his own fault. He had been a selfish fool. He certainly hadn't thought about his wife and his kids and taking care of them. Why should the old man now be thinking about that? But if they were surprised by the behavior of the CFO, that was nothing compared to what they experienced when they looked at the old man, the CEO. Because instead of calling for security and having this guy hauled out and prosecuted and so, he sat there as if he was actually thinking about this guy's request, this guy's plea for mercy. And then next thing you know, the expression on his face kind of softens and tears roll down his face. 
And he did not take the CFO's offer to pay back the debt. What he did, in fact, was he canceled the debt. He canceled the debt. And he says, you don't know a thing. There'll be no prison. There'll be no disgrace. Your wife, your family, your kids, everything is okay. You tell them that. And then come back here and get to work. And uh, this word went out on Twitter. As you can imagine, this was a huge, huge story. Tweeted out, single phrase, forgiven, hashtag grace. Now, of course, you understand the debt didn't just disappear or go away. Somebody had to absorb that debt. And that someone was the old man. And uh, you cannot believe how captivated everybody was by the story of the old man taking on the debt that this CFO had created, this incredible story of forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness of an unpayable debt. It was unprecedented. It was on NPR. It was on stuff like, you know, the, This American Life. You know, everybody was talking about this. Uh, the Economist did a cover story on it. Taylor Swift wrote a song about it. Uh, Kevin Costner tried to get the movie rights because he wanted to play the old man, but he was already too old, you know. But, of course, that's not the end of the story. The CFO went back to work, as he had been told to do, and he was checking out PayPal on company time one day when he saw a guy in his department that he'd completely forgotten about. The guy had borrowed $50 from him and owed him 50 bucks. This was just a low-level guy, entry-level kind of a thing, data entry, minimum wage, that type of thing. And so the CFO goes down to this guy's department, his little cubicle where he's working and he says, hey, you know, you, you haven't paid me back the money you owe me and I, I want it now, so pay me now. And the low-level guy didn't have it on him, told him that. And at the time, he was a little stretched because he was caring for his aging parents and was kind of hard-pressed for even 50 bucks. But he said, you know, give me till payday and I'll, I'll pay you back the 50 bucks. But the guy there says, no, I'm, I'm not waiting till payday. I want to be paid. I want to be paid right now. Now, they're standing in this guy's workspace. So other employees, right, are hearing this and they're, they're watching what's going on. And they're, they're figuring that some kind of neat surprise is coming. They, they know that this CFO is going to, you know, he's going to do what they expect him to do. He's going to show grace. It's, I'm just kidding. You don't have, you know, you're forgiven. I mean, man, when you think about what he had experienced at the hands of grace, the debt he had been forgiven, an unpayable debt, an astronomically large debt. This is just 50 bucks. So they know, they know it's just a matter of time before grace flows out of this CFO. And there would, it would kind of be his way of just, it's a small way, but it'd be his way of saying, thank you. Thank you for the incredible grace that I've received. And so they're watching, they're waiting for that moment of grace to occur. But it doesn't. Quite the opposite. The CFO's face never softens, no tears ever flow. In fact, uh, his heart remains hard and he just says, no, buddy, you owe me. I want the 50 bucks right now. And if you can't pay, you don't work here anymore. You're done working in this company. And he calls security and has the man escorted out of the building. And the employees that are around hearing this, watching this, as you can well imagine, they're stunned. They're shocked. How can he do this? Somebody who had been given, had been forgiven such an enormous debt. How, how could he be so incredibly unforgiving about this debt, this small, insignificant debt? And word about this spread very quickly through the company. 
So the old man calls this CFO back into his office, and this time the meeting is short and there are no surprises. The old man says, you, you didn't get it, did you? You didn't understand what was being done for you. You thought that my grace to you was just the fuzzy-minded, incompetent thinking of an old man. Well, you were wrong. You thought that I was just someone who was letting you get away with a clever trick. Well, you were wrong. You were shown forgiveness, but you wouldn't turn around and show forgiveness to others. You were granted mercy, but you wouldn't extend even the smallest amount of mercy to someone else. You were offered love, but you chose to exact vengeance instead. So vengeance, it will be. You, you have it your way. And the man was handed over to the court system. He was tried. He was convicted. He was put in prison until he or his family members would be able to pay off this unpayable debt. And the CEO and the old man tweeted out just, just one little phrase, unforgiven, hashtag judgment. Now, many of you recognize the story, right? It's not original. Jesus was the first teller of this story. You can read the story in Matthew chapter 18, and I encourage you to do exactly that. It's, it is not a subtle story, not at all. And in case any of us would miss the meaning of the story, uh, Jesus actually uh, spells it out crystal clear. In Matthew 18, 35, he says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Woo. Wow. As I said, not subtle. Now I want to pause here for a second because of course, this is a story about the whole human race. We really understand it. Jesus says there is a God who is lavishly generous. It's the CEO. But he is also painstakingly just. It's the CEO. And human beings have accumulated a mountain, understand, a mountain of moral debt in regard to this God. And you and I, we add to this debt, if we're being honest, if we really see things for what they are, we add to this moral debt all the time, all the time. Every time we're less than honest, every time we fudge on an expense account, every time we're unloving to someone we should be loving, every time we make a cutting remark we don't need to make, every time that we uh, should have spoken in love, but for whatever reason, we just held back, we didn't do it. Every time we've gossiped, every time we weren't grateful, but we should have been, every time we closed our eyes, our hearts, our purses to the poor, every time, every time we nursed a grudge or acted selfishly, every time we had a self-righteous attitude towards someone else, every time we failed to be generous with the finances that God has given us, with the time God has given us with the resources, the skills and abilities God has given us. Every time we turned a blind eye to things like racism, every time we chose not to grow, not to learn, not to change, spiritually speaking. You see, Jesus is so serious about this that he adds this little postscript to the Lord's prayer. It's the same thing. 
And it's underlining the fact that there is this huge mountain of moral debt that we owe. And this postscript actually asks us to do something with the fact that that, that has been canceled. Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, there is this postscript. And people who study these things know that a postscript, a PS, is the most read thing of any message, right? If you send an email, the thing that people will pay closest attention to is a PS if you put one there. Uh, and Jesus gives the world's most prayed prayer in all of human history. We looked at it last week, right? And then he adds this postscript to it. He says this, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Wow. Wow. You might find yourself thinking, wow, God, you're being awfully strict there. I mean, isn't it your job to forgive? I mean, isn't that what you do, God? I mean, aren't you supposed to, you know, I fail, you forgive, right? That's your job. Yeah? Sometimes we think that way. Understand, Jesus is not saying, you know, God could forgive you, but he is withholding forgiveness to motivate you to be more forgiving. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, Jesus is commenting on the nature of forgiveness as that relates to the human condition, our hearts, our predispositions. You see, there is a vast chasm between wanting to be forgiven versus wanting to get out of trouble. Yeah? Uh, a few years ago, Holly and I were driving uh, in our car, our 33-hour drive to Canada that we do each summer. And uh, we were in Michigan. We were only actually minutes from the border uh, to cross over into Canada. And I was pulled over for speeding. And uh, it was a speed trap. I mean, I promise. I'm sure it was a speed trap because, you know, the cars in front of me were traveling as fast as I was. I wasn't passing any of them. And they all had Michigan plates. I had Colorado plates. And uh, so anyway, the officer pulls me over and I, I apologize. I told him I was from out of town. He knew that. I told him I didn't know the speed limit. True, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't know the speed limit. Uh, I told him I would slow down. I would do better. I told him I'm a pastor. I'm a man of God. Uh, you know, I told him all this stuff. Didn't matter. Was not impressed. Point is this. All I really wanted was to get out of trouble. All I really wanted was not to have to pay the fine. I was not truly repentant about the speed I was traveling. In fact, I was prepared the moment I crossed over into Canada to travel at that speed again, but... Different scenario, okay? In my marriage, one of the things I've slowly become aware of over the decades of being married, uh, one of my patterns of behavior that really hurts our marriage, hurts Holly, is this thing of withdrawal and coldness. You know, it, if my feelings get hurt, if I get upset, if I get angry, if I'm frustrated at something having to do with Holly, one of the things I tend to do without thinking about it is I just kind of pull back emotionally you know, pull back physically, spiritually, that kind of thing. I get cold. I can be distant, and it's very hurtful. Uh, it's a sinful thing to do. It's destructive. Um, but I can honestly say when I become aware of it, because oftentimes I'm doing this and I'm not very aware of it, when I'm made aware of it, when God kind of taps me on the shoulder, uh, Dwayne, do you see what you're doing? Well, I think I can honestly say when that happens, I really do want to be forgiven. 
I really do want to change. I don't want to live there. I want to do what needs to be done, have the hard conversations, uh, do truth-telling. I want and I need to grow in an area like that. Uh, That's very different than the ticket situation. You see, if I want you to forgive me, that means that I agree with you that I've done something wrong, right? I'm not trying to evade the truth that I've done something wrong. If I don't think I've done something wrong, then of course I don't think I need to be forgiven. Are you with me so far? Now, I had an acquaintance uh, some years ago uh, that kind of behaved badly. They were here at the church for a while, then they left. We kind of became friends, but more, more acquaintances really than friends. And, and when, they, when they left, I, I, they were saying some gossipy, slanderous kinds of things uh, about me. And so uh, I called them up, wanted to get together, wanted to talk, wanted to process some of that. And when I did that, long story short, he didn't want to talk. And he just kind of withdrew and retreated back into silence. I didn't, didn't hear from him. And I figured, okay, that's, you know, that's what that is. And then a few years later, this acquaintance emailed me and he said that he forgave me for not having been in contact with him enough. And at which point I, I wanted to tell him what I thought he could do with his forgiveness. And uh, that would have given him something, of course, to <laughs> then forgive me for. <laughs> but uh, you, I hope you see the point. The point is, if I want to be forgiven as opposed to just avoid trouble, well, it means that I recognize I've done something wrong. I see the moral mountain of debt, if you will, right? And I, I want to become the kind of person that stops doing those kinds of things, stops doing that wrong to other people or in situations. Imagine I say to Holly, you know, I don't want to quit withdrawing. I don't want to quit uh, putting this distance between us. I don't want to quit being cold. I just want you not to complain about it. Well, then I'm not really wanting for a forgiver as much as I'm wanting an enabler, right? That's really what I'm wanting. If I truly want to be forgiven by God, I agree with him. I have done wrong, horrible wrong. There's a mountain of debt that I have amassed before you. And I want to stop doing that. I want that debt, that mountain of moral debt to be canceled. You see, forgiveness is always, of course, a gift of grace. And receiving forgiveness usually involves a a lot of work. I mean, I have to recognize my own wrongdoing. I have to fully own it. I have to identify and say, boy, this needs to change in me. This, This is ugly. That's part of what repentance is. And in order to even get there, grace has to be operative in my life. That that kind of thing is a process of grace as well. If I cling to things like resentment toward other people or holding a grudge or bitterness or retaliation or kind of passive aggressive, I deny having never done any wrong, then I don't want to be forgiven. And I certainly don't want to repent. And I don't want to become a new creature, a new creature created in Christ and live in the reality of God's kingdom. And... I think you could say, God will let me live there if that's where I want to live. He will let me live in a state of resentment and grudge holding and bitterness and and retaliation and seeking vengeance and that whole passive aggressive thing. He'll let me live there. And just as an aside, that will destroy me. That, That will make of me a very ugly person. Now, one more thing here. Understand... It's not psychologically possible for us to 
know God's tender-hearted pity toward us. But I, I, don't, I don't mean be vaguely aware of it. I mean, it's not possible for us psychologically to know God's tender-hearted pity toward us and then for us to remain completely hard-hearted towards others. It's not possible. This is a critically important point <coughs> that we need to understand about the human condition. You cannot have one posture toward God and another posture toward people. And it's not that you shouldn't have that. It's, it's that you can't. Uh, it is impossible because, you see, you, you are one person with one character, one spirit. Uh, the Bible indicates things like this. In 1 John 4.20, uh, John says, For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's just underlying this point that, you know, we're unified beings and my true character pervades everything I do. I can't be one thing spiritually and another thing relationally. We don't work that way. I heard a celebrity uh, who was accused of sexual assault uh, lately. Uh, almost every politician has been accused of this now and celebrities are falling into that category. I mean, there's been a lot of people accused of sexual assault and things like that lately. This particular celebrity said this, and I quote, I apologize because this action does not reflect who I am. They did not deny the incident. They just said, I apologize because this action does not reflect who I am. And I, I just say, well, unfortunately it does. Our actions always do reflect who we are. My true character is revealed not so much by the values I publicly profess to you, but much more by the, by the actions I take, the decisions I make, by, by what I do. That's the truth about me and the truth about you. Jesus came into the world that was governed by the law of retaliation. That's the law that's out there. That's the world we live in. You help me, I'll help you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You punch me, I'll punch you back, you see. That is what we naturally do. That's our, and if we don't do it, that's what we think. I'll find a way to get back at you. That's how we think in the flesh in our sinful fallen human nature, in the kingdom that is our kingdom, our selfish little kingdom, but in the kingdom of God, well, there's another basis for relating to each other. The psalmist says this in Psalm 103, the psalmist says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion <clears throat> on those who fear him. Now, that passage once upon a time was translated just a little bit differently. Go back and look at older versions of the Bible in English. The word that we today almost consistently across the board translate compassion was once upon a time translated pity. Pity. Uh, as the father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Uh, James, who is the brother of Jesus, wrote these words. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Uh, once upon a time, that verse too was actually translated into English a little differently. It was translated, the Lord is full of pity and compassion. You see, this word pity happens to be a key word. The reason I'm mentioning this, if you go read the story back there in Matthew 18, the one that I gave you a little paraphrase of, you'll find that the word pity is key to that whole story. 
Jesus says this in Matthew 18, 27. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Pity. That word pity is interesting. We don't, we don't use it much anymore. Uh, mercy, mercy is okay. Compassion is fine, but not pity. Pity is kind of offensive. I mean, it offends our pride a little bit. The idea of being pitied by someone. We'll, we'll even say, I don't need your pity. You know, that's disgusting. Pity, it's disgusting. Well, the truth is, the truth about me is I'm a pretty pitiable person. If my friends and family are actually going to love me, uh, it will not be on the basis of my natural wonderfulness. I know that's hard to believe, but <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's not going to be on the basis of my, my natural wonderfulness. They are going to have to pity me. They're going to have to have compassion and show lots of mercy. They must see my neediness and my weakness and be given mercy from God for me to love me in spite of my mountain of moral debt because some part of that mountain is stuff that has happened in their direction. Things I should have said to them that I didn't say, things I did to them that I shouldn't do. And, uh, you know, some of you, I, I don't do this too much because only some of us have read these books, but some of you who have read Tolkien's books, I referred to this last, uh, last Sunday, The Lord of the Rings. You, you may know that pity is actually the key to that whole epic story, pity. Early on in The Hobbit, the first book, you know, that precedes the trilogy, uh, Bilbo Baggins has gotten hold of the ring of power, that evil ring. Helps him to be invisible, right? But it's an evil power ring. And he becomes invisible when he puts it on. And, and now he got it away from Gollum. Remember, they're in a cage. And now he has to get past Gollum. He's got to get out of this cave. Did I say cage? He's got to get out of this cave, but he's trapped in there. And Gollum wants to kill Bilbo Baggins. He just can't see him. You know, he can't find him. Yeah, if he could, he'd kill him. And Tolkien writes this of Bilbo in that circumstance. He says, about Bilbo, he must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out, kill it. But then something happens because that's what Bilbo is thinking. I got to kill this, this creature. But then something happens inside Bilbo. He changes and it says a sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror welled up in Bilbo's heart. A glimpse of endless, unmarked days without light or hope. That's what Gollum has been experienced, uh, experiencing. A glimpse of endless, unmarked days without light or hope. And Bilbo comes to realize that. And so Bilbo has pity, pity for Gollum. Now, he doesn't exactly forgive him. I mean, Gollum's not asking for forgiveness, right? But Bilbo refuses to repay evil for evil. You know, he would deserve to be killed. And instead, he repays evil with good. That's what Bilbo does. Now, much later in the story, are you still with me? Anybody remotely interested about this? Come on, hang with me. Come on, do a little work here. A little later in the story, Frodo has to deal with Gull. Remember Frodo? He's the nephew of Bilbo Baggins, and now he's got the ring. He's the ring uh, possessor, and he's got to deal with this creature, Gollum. And Frodo is having a conversation with the wizard Gandalf, People who haven't read any of these books could just care less about what, when's he going to be done with this? Well, anyway, just put it on hold. I'm going to get back to the other stories. I say. So Frodo says to the wizard Gandalf, he says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him. That's what he says. It's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him. 
And Gandalf, the you know, very wise wizard, says this, pity? It was, a, it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand that stopped him from killing Gollum. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil. That is, be sure that Bilbo was affected so little by the evil because he began his ownership of the ring. So, with pity. Ooh, interesting. And then you, if you know the story, I'm going to tell the whole story to you, okay? <laughs> if you know the story, if you do, you, you know that at the end, Frodo is not strong. He's, so, he's become so possessed by the ring, he can't get rid of it. He can't destroy it. He's going to hold on to it, right? Uh, and there's this fight uh, for the, the possession of the ring with Gollum that takes place. And it turns out that it is this Gollum who actually inadvertently destroys the ring. And so here's the thing. You get it? It was pity that saved the world. Pity. We all think that we can be anything we want to be. In fact, we think that we will be brilliant, strong, beautiful, successful people. But in the end, when we've gotten a little older, experienced a little life, we begin to realize that we are loved and we are accepted on the basis of pity. Pity from God, pity from the people around us, the people who love us. And so we too learn or should be learning to live with pity, to live with mercy, to live with compassion for others. We learn to live in forgiveness, you see. And understand too, on the cross, we need to be clear about this. It was pity that moved Jesus to cancel our debt at the price of his own death. You see, on the cross, it was pity that saves the world. Now, you might wonder, where can you go to find a group of pitiful sinners, people who will wrong you and hurt you so you can practice forgiveness? <laughs> Good news. You found us. You're here. We are a perfectly pitiful church. We are a pitiful community. We are a people who aren't perfect. We're just pitiful. That's our new motto, by the way. <laughs> and so, you know, we remember. Uh, this is how my heavenly father will treat me if I forgive others from my heart. He cancels my debts. I can cancel the debt of others with his help. And so we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I'm going to assume you have some debtors. You're alive. You must have some. Maybe it's a mom or dad who didn't do right by you. Maybe they're still not. Or maybe it's your husband or wife, some terrible behavior that they have committed against you or towards you. Or maybe it's a son or maybe it's a daughter. Maybe it's an in-law. Maybe it's somebody at work who's wounded you, cheated you. Or maybe it's somebody even in this room. Question, what are you going to decide? What are you going to choose to do? Will you choose grace? Will you choose forgiveness? Or will you choose resentment and hatred and revenge and bitterness? Back to the Lord of the Rings story, because you all love that. Uh, that's what Gollum chose. 
rage, vengeance, bitterness. And he became one kind of creature. Bilbo chose something different. He chose to show pity. I think the difference is kind of reflected in who we become depending on what we choose. Now, please understand, this does not mean, of course, that you excuse or tolerate wrongdoing. I mean, there's legitimate boundaries that we draw if somebody's hurting us. I, that's a different sermon series, okay? But, so I'm, I'm not commenting on that so much. Uh, we often have to draw healthy boundaries. Um, understand that when we forgive too, we don't always get to places of reconciliation with people. Uh, the truth be told, if somebody sins against you and refuses to acknowledge that they have, they refuse to repent, they don't agree with you that they've done something wrong, well, you're not going to rebuild a relationship with them. Full forgiveness, full reconciliation and restoration involves both parties owning their wrong confessing, repenting, and so. We don't always get there in relationships, this side of heaven. However, we ourselves can start the process of forgiveness, forgiving them even regardless whether they ask. You see, here's the thing. I would say this is the big point. <clears throat> when we follow Jesus, we give up the right to hurt the other person back. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Not my, not my job to get vengeance. So we must get to the place where we wish them well before God. God, your will be done in this person's life. Your will. And obviously, isn't it obvious? We need God's help to do that. We cannot do this on our own. Philip Yancey wrote a wonderful book uh, many years ago. I've read it several times. Uh, What's So Amazing About Grace? I bet many of you have, have uh, read that book. And in it, he writes about the consequences, what, what can happen when we hold on to resentment, to grudge, to hatred, to getting revenge. And, uh, <coughs> and he writes this. He says, I have a friend whose marriage has gone through tumultuous times. One night, George passed a breaking point. He pounded the table and, and, and the floor, and he said, I hate you. He screamed at his wife. I won't take it anymore. I have had enough. I will not go on. No, 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 he shouted. And then several months later, my friend woke up in the middle of the night and heard a strange sounds coming from the room where his two-year-old son slept. And so he padded down the hall, stood for a moment outside his son's door, and shivers ran through his flesh. He could not draw a breath in a soft voice, the two-year-old was repeating word for word with precise inflection the argument between his mother and father. I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No, no, no. And George realized that in some awful way he had just bequeathed his pain and anger and unforgiveness to the next generation. Friends, Jesus said this. He said, forgive us our debts as we. And serious wrongs happen every day. That is the story of our pitiless world. 
And the big question is, what are we going to do with those wrongs when they happen to us? There's a scholar by the name of Walter Wink. He, he died like 2010 or something like that. Um, he, was a, he was a liberal theologian, but he did a lot of writing about World War II and the after effects of World War II. And he writes about two peacemakers who visited Poland and visited Polish Christians living in Warsaw. And uh, these Polish Christians, um, of course, had been devastated by the Germans in the war. And, and uh, these peacemakers had come to these Polish Christians and were asking them if they'd be willing to have a meeting with some West German Christians. And these West German Christians wanted to ask forgiveness. They wanted to begin a new relationship. They wanted to know if these Polish Christians would meet with them. And when that question was asked, the way, the way uh, Walter Wink describes it, he said there was just silence. There was just silence. And the Polish Christian said, what you're asking is impossible. Every stone of Warsaw is soaked with Polish blood that they spilled. We cannot forgive that. Then they finished their conversation and they decided to circle up and they were going to close the meeting. It's a Christian meeting. They were going to close it with prayer. And so they decided to pray the Lord's Prayer. And they got to those words and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Silence again. Everybody just instinctively stopped praying. They were greatly distressed. And finally, one of the Polish Christians said, I can no longer say this prayer or call myself a Christian if I don't forgive. And humanly speaking, they said, I can't do it. But God will likely give me the strength. And 18 months later, a year and a half later, Polish Christians and German Christians were meeting in Vienna and went on meeting for years to come until they passed away, became best of friends, reconciliation, forgiveness, a forgiveness of debts. Now, nice story. <laughs> I know. I understand that forgiving can be very complex. It can be deep. It can be quite a process. It's a process that can take weeks, it can take months, it can take years, it can take decades. I get that, I know that. But I have to wonder, over the last 2,000 years, how many marriages might have changed? How many families, how many friendships, how many churches would be different, how many lives could have been different if when the Lord's Prayer was prayed, we just stopped at that line and took it seriously? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What a dumb word that is, celebrate. We're going to celebrate somebody dying, somebody getting crucified. Why do we do that? Why do we use that language? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, we do it because on the cross, Jesus pitied us and paid, canceled our debt, you see. It's a sacrament where we remember that and where we receive in fresh ways the forgiveness that Jesus offers. His mercies, the Bible tells us, are new every morning. Now, 
before we do this, I thought it would be a good idea if we just invite the Holy Spirit to work in us to make us like, more like Jesus. And I thought we would pray the Lord's Prayer together. And when we get to that part of the prayer, as we also have forgiven our debtors, let's just think about that. Let's reflect on that. And let's invite, because that's really all we can do. We can invite God to work in us and change us where we need to change. We can ask him to help us forgive our debtors the way he forgives our mountain of moral debt. Would you do that with me? I think I'm going to ask you to stand for this. That way you wake up. And we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. The words will be on the screen. And we're going to stop at that point in the prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Worship team can come on up if you want at this time. Um, Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then this last line together. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You used to always wonder about that last line. You could be seated. You used to wonder about that last line and lead us not into temptation. That's so weird. But when you stop and reflect on the line before it, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What are you tempted to do with your debtors? Get revenge, right? get even, get justice. And the very next thing that Jesus has in the prayer is lead us not into temptation. I have to believe there's that juxtaposition is there for a reason. Take us down a different path, but deliver us from the evil one. What does the evil one want? He wants us at war with each other. He wants us to demand justice from others while all the while we're sitting on top of a mountain of moral debt of our own, you see. We, uh, we have a sacramental meal, a covenantal meal, a meal with promises that Jesus has instituted. The promise is that when we come to this meal in faith, believing in Jesus' death, believing in his resurrection, believing in what he accomplished on the cross, our debts are canceled. A covenantal meal, a meal with promises. And it's not supposed to stop here with this meal. It's supposed to spin out in terms of how we cancel the debts of others, debts that they owe us. So I hope with that slightly broader understanding we can come and participate in this meal together and and if need be let the Holy Spirit begin a process of change in us 
to forgive those people who have wounded us, wounded us, hurt us, sinned against us. Imagine Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples who have all wounded him. They all have mountains of moral debt and he's about to die for them. And he says to them, this bread is my body broken for you. Jesus isn't going to blink and ignore their sin. He's going to pay for their sins. That's what his broken body is about. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then he offered the bread and the cup to his disciples. He said, eat, and he said, drink. And when we do, we're remembering his promises. We're embracing his canceled, canceling of our debts. And we can't let his love and his forgiveness, his mercy and his grace stop here. We become a people who extend that love and that grace and that mercy to others. So pray with me. Father God, this is a meal that challenges us. It's a meal that encourages us because in it, we are reminded of what Jesus has done. We're reminded of his love, reminded of his canceling our debts. We're reminded that we have his righteousness. It's a gift, a free gift, a gift of grace. And with that changing us, God, we find even the calling, the desire to forgive our debtors, but we need help. And that help starts right here, Lord. It starts with getting crystal clear that we have a mountain of moral debt, a debt so big we can't pay it. But Jesus did. Jesus paid it for us. And for that, we say thank you. We pray, God, that we would be filled with faith and gratitude and thanksgiving as we partake of this meal such grace and thanksgiving and mercy that it overflows into our relationships with each other. We thank you for what's signified here. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.